Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. And here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written published article, Who Was at the Helm? 
from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage Show from 32494, the earliest show in the archive, 32494. My interview with Donald Trump from 110-2011. 110-2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump. Much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar, and you get a better buzz with, with the Savage Premium. So go to, go to glow.fm slash savagepremium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. So this is a little offbeat, what the Bible says about sex. Why am I doing this? Because I can't take the news anymore. People I know who are very intelligent, who are extremely political, have turned the news off because they cannot take the threat of nuclear war. They cannot take the Antichrist Biden, who may be the devil incarnate, the most racist president in American history, laughing at people, attacking white people, the most Machiavellian evil man in the history of the presidency. No one can take it. I, you, you look at my website. John Fetterman co-sponsors Senate bills despite being institutionalized since February. Where in the world would a mental case in a mental hospital be able to vote in the Senate, but in the de degenerated America? Where? And then I see another story, and I'm not even going to do this. New York City plans to dole out $21,500 each to 2020 Black Lives Matter protesters. Where in the world are criminals given a reward but in this upside-down, topsy-turvy, psychotic America. So I decided, you know what, I can't do this. I'm not going to do one more podcast at this time on this subject. So what am I going to do? I was uh, watching TV the other night, and I, uh, I think it was uh, one of the top preachers in the country, and he said that the number one selling book in history is the Bible. I said, that's probably true. And then I thought, and I said, how many times a day does the average healthy man think about sex? I, I read somewhere once, it was like all day long, <laughs> Men, their minds keep wandering to sex. So I said, let's combine Bible and sex. So what does the Bible say about sex? Interesting. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about cross-dressing? What does the Bible say about do you care what the Bible says? Yes or no? What's the really good news? Does the Bible say anything about sex? Well, here's an article I just found on the subject from the National Library of Medicine published in 1997 when America was sort of still sane. D.W. Hafner, Abstract. According to this author's analysis of the Bible, its text reveals its usefulness as a theological tool capable of demonstrating a sexual theology that rejects attempts to limit experiences of sexuality or promote systematic oppression of sexuality. I see already where they're going. This was already creeping into the temple. I could see what's, what's happening here. I'll go on. Uh, the abstract continues. The Hebrew Bible covers many sexual themes in its stories, starting with an explanation of biological sex and the reason for two genders given in the creation stories, 
and moving on to the importance of sexual intercourse for sexual pleasure as well as for procreation. Additional themes reviewed from the Hebrew Bible include physical beauty, love at first sight, fertility, genital and bodily functions, destructive uses of sexuality, sexuality and relationships, homosexuality, adultery, and celibacy. The Song of Solomon is the most overtly sexual book of the Bible, and the early Christian teachers attempted to present these verses as allegory and went so far as to warn that no one under the age of 30 should read the text. Can you believe how far we've come? Can you believe there was a time in America when they warned that no one under the age of 30 should read the Song of Solomon? And now we have teachers dressing with fake breasts and bringing transvestite psychotics into the classroom. Can you believe this? I'll go on with the abstract. On the other hand, it writes, the New Testament contains little about sexuality with the exception of the first letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, which could be viewed as a first century form of sexual instruction because it covers at least 17 sexuality topics, including anatomy, families, child rearing, values, decision making, communication, assertiveness, shared sexual behavior, and sexual desire, and provides information on bodies, love, marriage, gender roles, and sexuality. So according to the author, the Bible is an important starting point in the struggle of many denominations with sexuality issues. Remember, this was written in 1997. She recommends that sexologists consider the sexual theology present in the Bible and its impact on the people they serve, and that they spread the news that the Bible affirms a healthy and positive view of sexuality. Now, this was written in 1997 when we talked about sexuality. We all understood it meant sex between man and a woman. We all understood that it meant family values. Well, now, since the radical lesbians first targeted the churches, by the way, which is what they did, they first invaded the churches, they invaded the uh, schools of so-called theology, and then they completely destroyed the universities. So that was the view then uh, of what... Uh, Bible says about sex, it's generic, and then it links us to similar articles, the Christian ethic and sexuality towards an evolution of sexual ethics, I can imagine where that goes, adolescence and abstinence, fact sheet, sexual morality of Christianity, social and ethical determinants of human sexuality, other kind of academic views of sexuality. What's this one from, 19, from 2007? Situational and relational factors associated with coitus during vaginal bleeding among adolescent women. I think I'll skip that one. Uh, I don't think that's something I really want to discuss at this time. So what other topics about sexuality can I and uh, should I talk about? Here's one. This is, again, from an earlier time in American history. I would say everything here is PD, pre-Biden. That's before the Antichrist arose in the White House and destroyed everything of value in Western civilization. So this is called Sexuality in Advanced Age in Jewish Thought and Law. Advanced Age? Wow. Shall I read that to you? Sex and Marital Therapy. Okay. In the National Library of Medicine's Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy. Of course, that today it's all tranny and, uh, and homosexuality. They took over the entire universe of sexual thought and writings. But at that time, P.D., pre-Biden, 
sexuality and advanced age in Jewish thought and law. Let me scan this one, see if you're interested in this. It's a shorty. Judaism has a positive attitude to sexual relations within a marriage and views such sexual relations as important not only for procreation, but also as a part of the framework of marriage. This is true for any age group, and sexuality is seen as an essential element of marriage for couples of advanced age. In this article, the authors present the views of Jewish law and thought regarding sexuality among older couples. The authors illustrate this using three case studies of couples who sought guidance in the area of sexuality. In addition, this area of counseling benefits greatly from an ongoing relationship and dialogue between expert rabbis in the field and therapists treating older Orthodox Jewish patients for sexual dysfunction. The triad relationship of couple, therapist, and rabbi enhances the ability to treat and assist such couples to seek treatment and overcome their difficulties. I don't like the word treatment. Who's doing the treatment? Who's the treater and who's the treatee? Michael Savage, a host like no other. Similar articles on this uh, link include Judaism and Homosexuality, the Traditionalist Progressive Debate. This again was from 1989, long time ago, ancient history. Then here's one, The Really Good News, What the Bible Says About Sex, Women's Voices in Jewish Bioethics, Evaluation and Treatment of Unconsummated Marriages Among Orthodox Jewish Couples, and the next one in the link is Sex for Life, question mark, men's counter stories on erectile dysfunction, male sexuality and aging. What is that about? So this is from 2006. It should be somewhat safe from the perversion that has infected all of academia since then. Let's scan this one. Sex for life, question mark, men's counter stories on erectile dysfunction, male sexuality and aging. Let's see how long the abstract is. All right, short enough for you to pay attention to it. I'll read it to you. Discourse on male sexuality and mental later life has exploded in recent years. This is from 1998. Attention to this topic has been spurred by the advent of highly profitable sexuopharmaceutical solutions to erectile changes affecting older men. Success stories abound in the media and in medical literature related to the restoration of faulty erections and ailing sex lives through drug, drugs such as Viagra. Remember, it was kind of new then. Uprima, apomorphine, and Cialis. In this paper, we explore some of the ways in which notions about aging and male sexuality are changing in popular cultural and medical texts in response to the advent of Viagra and the increasing authority of biomedicine in this area. We also demonstrate how the recent biomedical endorsement of sex for life, the imperative to maintain an active, youthful, masculine heterosexuality defined in terms of male orgasm through penetrative sex, may be challenged by the very accounts of older men who are or have been affected by erectile difficulties and have used drugs like Viagra themselves. We present the perspectives of mid to late life heterosexual men in New Zealand. Why New Zealand? I don't know. Whose stories question the contemporary biomedical privileging of erections. Privileging of erections and intercourse at any cost at any age. Privileging of erections and intercourse at any age? I don't understand that one. We argue that the current push 
to identify and treat so-called erectile dysfunction and restore erections and penetrative sex to relationships, neglect some men's own experiences of alternative modes of relating sexually that they identify as normal, healthy, enjoyable, and satisfying for them and their partners, and undermines their understanding of such changes as positive outcomes of aging experience and maturity. I guess they're talking about older people who can have sex without a man getting an erection, by the way. Similar articles on this site, Viagra stories, challenging erectile dysfunction. Okay, that's from 2004. From 06, here's another related article. Uh, Erectile function and assessments of erection hardness correlate positively with measures of emotional well-being, sexual satisfaction, and treatment satisfaction in men with erectile dysfunction treated with Viagra. Eh. Next one. The downside of Viagra, women's experiences and concerns. That's an interesting uh, article right there. The downside of it. We never hear about the women in a marriage where the guy's running around like, like uh, an animal at heat. Is there a time when sex is supposed to kind of diminish? You're supposed to like have sex like a wild mink until you're dead? Uh, Viagra treatment for electrodesmine. Let me look at that one. The downside of Viagra, women's experience and concern. Shall I do that one in this little uh, Discord? Let's see if we can link that. Here we go. It's an, I like this. Comparative study. Again, from what year? How far before Biden was this? 2003. That's before the perverts took over every aspect of uh, science. So let me read it. The downside of Viagra, women's experiences and concerns. Annie Potts, Nicola Gavey, Victoria Grace, Tina Varis. Abstract. Okay, it's a shorty. While much is known about the efficacy and safety of sexuopharmaceuticals used by men for the treatment of erectile difficulties, there remains a dearth of knowledge on the perspectives and experiences of their sexual partners. In particular, few studies have focused on the possible detrimental effects for women of Viagra use within a heterosexual relationship. In this paper, we report on a qualitative study based in New Zealand. I don't like the New Zealand part. The minute you say New Zealand, I think of herds of sheep. That's a joke, by the way. Which involved in-depth interviews with 27 women whose partners use Viagra. A number of key dimensions were identified, three of which revealed issues and concerns for women regarding the use of Viagra by the male partners and neglect of women by those producing and prescribing Viagra. The embodied relationship, which encompasses physical and psychosocial effects of Viagra, and broader socio-cultural implications. Example: the impact of the culture of Viagra on understandings about sexuality in older age, and ideas about male and female sexuality. Okay, they so far they've said nothing. Which we argue that while previous medically oriented research in this area has generally assumed an unproblematic link between Viagra use and the resumption of penetrative sex within heterosexual relationships, more attention needs to be paid to partners' perspectives and desires and to the specific dynamics of any given relationships. Moreover, while the publicity surrounding the Viagra use may potentially facilitate more positive attitudes to sexuality in older age, it may also produce a societal expectation that healthy and normal life for older people requires the continuation of, quote, youthful, energetic sex lives focused on penetrative intercourse. 
Well, I don't really understand what they're getting at. They so far they haven't said one word about women's experiences. I don't want to really bother going to the main article. But uh, I can imagine that there's a lot of women who really would rather not have an old man running around the house like a goat in heat, okay? Viagra stories challenging erectile dysfunction, the same authors. Sex men's counter stories on erectile dysfunction. Improvement in quality of sexual life in female partners of men with erectile dysfunction treated with uh, Viagra. Findings of the index of sexual life in a couple study. Oh, they have a whole thing, index of sexual life in ISL. Okay, so there's other articles. What's this? Effect of the aqueous extract of the aerial parts of Monsonia angustifolia on the sexual behavior of male Wistar rats. I don't really think I'm interested in that. <laughs> the aqueous extract of the aerial parts of Monsonia angustifolia. I should be interested because I'm an ethnobotanist by training as well, but okay, I get it. In other words, does this herb work? on the sexual behavior of male Wistar rats. Uh, not interested. Menopause and sexuality, I'll skip it. Medicated sex in Britain, evidence from the Third National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Life. I really, sex in Britain, not interested. Constructions of sex and intimacy after cancer, that's a serious one. Methodology, study of people with cancer, their partners and health professionals. That's a little difficult for me to look at. I'm not, I don't even want to go there. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. So I don't think we've covered anything new here in the 15 or so minutes I've been talking about the Bible and sex. What does the Bible tell us about sex? So far, I have found nothing other than have a good time and leave me alone. So we'll go back again to the Bible and sex. Uh, here's one. What does the Talmud say about sexual thoughts in old age? Okay. You're interested in what traditional Jewish law says or what Christian law says? Here's one. This is interesting. Modesty and sexuality in halachic literature. In other words, modesty. Have you heard the word modesty in the age of degenerate whores in the media? Every woman that's shown in the media is a degenerate whore. Okay, every woman that is displayed by the homosexual media, uh, sorry if I'm offending you with that, every woman that is shown in the media looks like a post-operative transvestite who's had their schmendra cut off. Let me read one more here. I think I've had enough of this. Modesty and sexuality in halachic literature. What does this say? That's in the Jewish Women's Archive. Well, that's an interesting uh, in this journal, Modesty and Sexuality in Halachic Literature. Okay, it's a short one. Though it is not mentioned in the Bible, the laws of modesty in Jewish life have developed into a significant part of modern halachic practice. That means religious. Along with a set of rules for men's behavior, the rules of modesty are designed to restrain men's sexual urges, even as the obligations largely fall onto women. These rules are meant to ensure that sex occurs in a way that, that the rabbi's view is appropriate. Oh, really? I, I want a rabbi to tell me what's appropriate? Why, dropping a sponge cake in his beard? Leave me alone. In addition to these rules, the rabbis also regulate sex itself, giving men an obligation to have sex. They do, by the way. You have to have sex with your wife in the two weeks a month that you're allowed to. You have to. 
So that's a good thing, I guess, for the women. However, opinions differ across different Jewish movements as to whether that sexuality is to be enjoyed or is merely an obligation to be performed. Oh, boy. Modesty remains an important topic in Israeli debates about women's role in society. This is an old article. Ancient history from when is this? I don't even know the year here. And then they go into some headlines, uh, the concept of modesty, sources for laws of modesty, the Jewish approach to sexuality, modesty and sexuality, and mysticism, Kabbalah, and philosophy. Hey, that's a good one. Mysticism and sexuality. The different images of man and woman and the consequent imposition of modesty strictures. The female image. The requirements for female modesty. The requirements of male modesty. Yeah, go tell that to the American male. Sinful thoughts so that impurity will not result. Ways of contending with sinful thoughts. Additional modesty strictures on account of ervad, the bounds of modesty between halacha and reality. And, you know, I'm going to look at one of these ways of contending with sinful thoughts because I'm a human being. This is amazing. I think I've stumbled on gold here. 20 minutes into this podcast. Uh, do you want me to do this or not? How do you deal with sinful thoughts? Because we all have them. I'll read a little bit of it. Let's see how it looks. Due to the scope and severity of sinful thoughts, scope and severity of sinful thoughts, just open up any newspaper, just turn on any television show. Numerous strategies for their advance avoidance have been proposed. This is pre this is pre-internet porn, by the way. The most common recommendation advises intensive and continual Torah study. Our Simeon Ben Yohai said sinful thoughts are lifted for anyone who has Torah teachings in mind. That means read the Bible. If you encounter this corruption, drag it to the study hall. In other words, turn your mind off from that and go to that. The Holy One, blessed be he who created the evil inclination, also created the Torah as its antidote. That cancels sinful thoughts. I'm sure it does. Rashi, one of the great scholars, argues that this is why the evil inclination is weaker among Israel than among other peoples. <laughs> I don't think anymore. Not after the internet. As Maimonides states simply, the thought of Arayat increases only in a mind that is lacking in wisdom. All right, look, it's true. Another popular counsel calls for drastically lowering the marriageable age for men. Interesting. The recommendations range between the ages of 14 and 20. Wow. 14? Imagine if I were married at 14. I can't imagine that. A 14-year-old boy getting married? But, you know, biblical times, another story. Wow. The main time for this is from 14 up. In any event, anyone who has reached the age of 20 without marrying will not be saved his entire life from the sinful thoughts in which he persists unless he is one of the few. For this reason, Arhisada, Hista, adds his voice to those calling for early marriage. Maimonides, one of the great scholars in Jewish life advises marriage between the ages of 17 and 20 unless a person was engaged in Torah study and is occupied in this. Interesting. The recommendation that a man not remain without a woman in order to be saved from thoughts of sin is so strong that it justifies the permission granted by 100 rabbis to marry a second wife if the first is hospitalized for insanity and is incapable of receiving a writ of divorce. No jokes on that one. This reason motivates 
a rabbi not to accept certain severities regarding menstruation, such as observing a celibate period of 40 days after the birth of a son and 80 days after the birth of a daughter, since they place the husband in great danger of entertaining sinful thoughts. I'm going to read one more. Look at this one. Kabbalistic and Hasidic books of ethical instruction are replete with various suggestions to avoid sinful thoughts, including the adoption of subliminal processes, such as the recommendation advanced in Hasidic works that say this. Wow, in the Zohar? If you suddenly happen to see a beautiful woman, think to yourself, whence is her beauty? If she were dead, she would no longer look this way. That's very cheerful. Thus, where does her beauty come from? Perforce, it must be said to come from the divine force diffused within her. It gives her the quality of beauty and redness, puts color in her cheeks. The root of beauty, therefore, is in the divine force. Why, then, should I be drawn after a mere part? I am better off in attaching myself to the root and core of all worlds, where all forms of beauty are to be found. So they're saying if you see a beautiful woman, you're supposed to think about her when she's dead. That's great. And then you're supposed to think about where the divine force, how the divine force created that beauty. And then go back to the divine force. Zavaha Aravish was influenced by the popular book by Ari Lahev de Vidas, Safed, 16th century, I've been in Safed, not in the 16th century, by the way, which was based on a tradition from the 13th century, Kabbalistic R. Isaac of Akko. Such techniques are frequently set forth in the ethical teachings and Hasidic literature. So people have been plagued with passion, with so-called sinful thoughts from the beginning of mankind. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Additional modesty strictures on account of Irvah. This is interesting. You know, I'm thinking of some Chinese poet that I read many years ago who wrote, look at a passing beauty as you would a passing cloud. Look at a passing beauty as you would a passing cloud. Can you grasp a cloud? Can you be with a cloud? No. It's just a passing cloud. All cultures have dealt with lust, passion. Additional modesty strictures on account of Erva. You want me to go on? Because it's pretty interesting to me. Some limitations were imposed on men to prevent sinful thoughts or sexual transgressions themselves. These include the group of prohibitions connected with the concept erva, such as the ban on hearing a woman singing. Oh boy, this is very Islamic. Some halachic authorities go so far as to forbid listening to a recording of such singing, even if the singer herself is no longer alive. The woman's voice, which is defined as sexually enticing, is capable of arousing sinful thoughts in the male listener's imagination, which affect them even when there is no possibility of their realization. Uh, tell that to um, uh, Warner Records or whoever. This is also the basis of the prohibition of looking at women, which originates in the Talmudic maxim, whoever looks at women will eventually come to sin. No, no kidding. The ban has been discussed extensively in the literature of the Paschim and the ethical teachings literature, even though it was honored mainly in societies in which there is no feminine public presence, or by individuals who particularly adopted ascetic practices. In Beit Yosef R., Joseph Caro cites extremely stringent views concerning looking at women, 
which regard gazing upon married women as falling under a Torah prohibition and paying such attention to unmarried women as forbidden. The prohibition of looking is also at the basis of the edict. A man should not walk on the road behind a woman. If she happened to be before him on a bridge, he should leave her on the side and pass before her. That's a very powerful idea, by the way. But this is a tremendously sexual view. I mean, a tremendously uh, a sexist view in, in this day and age in contemporary society. Because the public presence of women is unavoidable in our world, right? So how could you maintain such a prohibition? And so they say that this prohibition has primarily been transferred to women themselves in the demand that they properly cover their bodies. Short skirts, blah, blah, blah. So now you understand why the Muslims wear, uh, the Muslim women wear uh, the hijab and why some Muslim women uh, wear face coverings. It goes on. Should I read more? It's interesting to me. Just a little bit more. The prohibition against men conversing excessively with women, which will ultimately result in adultery, is liable to result in the sweeping banishment of women from social and public activity. Leading contemporary post-scheme tempered this prohibition by limiting it to situations that we patently fear may deteriorate to the commission of an actual sin. So that means, uh, you know, meeting a woman in a bar, for example. Conversing excessively with women. I remember reading about a, an edict about uh, a excessive conversation in drinking and conversing with strange women. I get that. Well, what can I say to you? We live in a different world. Gender separation, the severity of this prohibition, includes in the category of prohibitions connected with so many different things. Dancing was conducted in various Jewish communities in medieval Europe. A noteworthy phenomenon was the institutionalization of dancing in Ashkenazi communities. Special public buildings were erected for this purpose. Can you believe this? History is phenomenal to me. The earliest testimony to the construction of such a building is from the late 13th century in the community of Augsburg. Many communities possessed dance houses and some localities even engaged in mixed dancing under the supervision and partial limitation of communal regulations. Mixed dancing was the subject of fierce controversies over the course of time. These disputes included repeated attempts by rabbis and preachers to ban such activity, since they regarded it as containing most of the elements forbidden by the laws of modesty, sinful thoughts, gazing upon women, physical contact, and hearing a woman's voice. Wow! especially instructive in this context of the autobiographical descriptions by R. Joseph Steinhardt in 1777 in Firth, Germany, of his unsuccessful struggles to end mixed dancing. Can you believe this? Back in the Middle Ages, 13th century, 17th century, they were struggling with these ideas. Yes, because humans are humans. In the first half of the 20th century, the religious Zionist youth groups and the religious kibbutzim movement engaged in mixed horror dancing, However, during the second half of the century, the voices calling for a ban of mixed dancing increased, leading to a reduction of the phenomenon amongst Orthodox Jews. So there we were. Even dancing was considered a, a sin. Other prohibitions. Crazy stuff in some ways. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I don't know where to go with this. The bounds of modesty between Allah and reality. 
Well, I can go on with this. I mean, after Hollywood, what's left? Tell me what's left after Hollywood. Is there anything left? The whole world is a slut state. The whole world has become a slut state of insanity. Beginning in the late 1960s, here we go, this ethic of modesty changed significantly due to the increasing influence on the religious Zionist society of the Merkaz Harab school. This rising influence was fed by the euphoria of the Six-Day War, the massive transition to extensive settlement activity throughout Judea and Samaria, and the impressive development of religious education in Israel, blah, 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 seminaries for high school girls, blah, 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 military academy. So the world changed for the Israelis. Modesty changed for the Israelis. The new modesty, of course, in America doesn't exist. There is no modesty in America. The fact of the matter is, America's decline, if you really want to follow this carefully, you could say that where we are today is a direct result of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. If you want to really get into it, and if you want to really make the connections, and you want to look at religious law and see that humans have been struggling with their sexual thoughts and feelings since recorded history, and then you realize that the 1960s, which brought about, amongst other social changes, a so-called sexual revolution, that is when everything became acceptable, and that is when America became the degenerate whorehouse that it now is. I think I shall pause at this junction before I become even more thoughtful in my thoughts on the Michael Savage podcast. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.